Welcome to the Renaissance Podcast, and thank you for joining with us to worship and learn more about God. We are so excited to have you be a part of this week's service. For more podcasts and services from past weeks, or to join us online on Sunday mornings, check out the Church at Home page at rendicator.org. Now, enjoy the message. Well, good morning. Oh my gosh. My girlfriend has a sign that says, Go TJ on it. That's, that's amazing. That's phenomenal. <laughs> Well, hey, what's going on, everybody? Uh, my name's TJ Holmes. I'm the worship director here at the church, and uh, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. Um, yeah, this is weird. Uh, this is this is kind of bizarre. I'm actually totally used to uh, the room being totally dark, and with the spotlights hitting your face, I can see about three rows in, so it's like a really small crowd I'm playing for, and right now, there's a lot of people in here. My, my palms are sweating a little bit, so... Uh, this is great. No, but uh, if it wasn't clear by my job title, the worship director, um, I, I have a really great love for music. I actually grew up in a musical family. Um, both of my parents uh, taught choir and, and musical theory and some other stuff at, at Millican University. Uh, so f- suffice to say, music was just kind of a big deal in my family. Um, in fact, one of the ways my family even just engaged with each other was by singing together. Uh, singing in song was how we celebrated when something exciting happened. It was uh, how we showed each other we cared for each other when we sang at each other's big life events or uh, like our weddings, something like that. I'm not married yet, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. to the point. It was how singing in song, singing a song back to the point, was how, we, was how we mourned when something terrible had happened. We came together and we sang and we mourned together. It was how we brought gifts to other families as we um, would go caroling over the holidays or, uh, or maybe go see a family who was in turmoil and hope that our chords and song and the Holy Spirit working through everything would bring them some peace. Through all this, I just developed my love for music. I really kind of tried to fight this draw for music that I had starting out. I didn't go to school for it. Uh, I didn't want my passion to become like my, my day-to-day job and wind up like disliking it or something. So, um, but I just loved it. And growing up in the church, I guess it was kind of inevitable that I'd eventually engage with the church with music. And uh, my parents led the way with that as well. They were always directing a church choir or leading worship or something like that. And as I just grew into my faith and understanding of God, my appreciation for music came along in tandem. I was exposed to contemporary worship kind of really late in life. I grew up on a Baptist hymnal. You'd probably be hard-pressed to even find a hymn I'm not pretty familiar with, to be honest. Um, but I just kind of disliked contemporary worship the first time I ran into it even. Um, and uh, I think I was probably just influenced in that uh, by my parents' like pseudo-purist mentality that... that uh, Rock music could never stand up to four-part harmony, so. (laughs) But I began to just experience God through music. Um, Music was something that just opened my eyes, and as I, as I, uh, as I sang, and as I engaged in that, and as I grew to know God, I started learning something about worship. Music was a catalyst that just opened my eyes to worship. Yeah, I'm gonna talk about worship. Of course I am, I'm the worship director. Does he know anything else? I don't really think he does. Uh, no, actually, Jeff's been kind of piecing together a couple of um, what he's calling spiritual practices sermons, and they're little mini-series that we're going to maybe spend kind of three weeks on prayer, three weeks on Sabbath, three weeks on, on something else. And when I heard about this, I said, well, I want to do one on worship for sure. I think worship is a spiritual practice or a discipline as well. So 
here we are. We're getting started. I'm going to talk about worship. We're going to spend three full weeks on worship. I'm so sorry. Uh, no, as I, was, as I was practicing for this, that might, that might sound like a lot, but as I was preparing for this, I realized, man, I could spend, I could spend months talking about just what I'm going to talk about today, um, which would be no fun for anyone except myself. So we're going we're gonna to condense it down as much as I can. But I'm opening up this series on worship, um, and I want to start with the absolute basics. We're going to break this down um, to the very basic question, what is worship? Not much that I'm going to say today is, is new. Not much of it is my own um, ideas. All of it's been written about in books before by people a whole lot smarter than me, a whole lot more studied than me. But I want to share some stuff that I've just gained with you over the last five years of, of study um, and, and practice as I've been worshiping and, and helping lead you guys in worship as well. This is something that I think is important. This is something that, um, not just important, I think it might be foundational to our lives as Christians, maybe a building block on which we need to build our entire lives, like, like really important. So that's what we're going to go with this. I hope you guys are with me. Yeah. All right. I'm going to start with some prayer. So let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we uh, come before you today. God, we worship you with our, with our time and our actions. We praise your name today, Lord. Um, fill us with your, your Holy Spirit. Fill us with, um, yeah, just your will and your direction. God, we trust you. Um, yeah. We want to learn from you today. We want to hear from you, Lord. Teach us something new about yourself that we don't, haven't, haven't known before now. Let us walk out of this place uh, changed and different and in pursuit of you, God. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so what is worship? <clears throat> okay, if they gave out a handbook to new worship leaders when they initially started leading worship, it would probably be called something like worship is a lifestyle. If you've been around the church very long, you've probably heard that phrase before. It's, it's actually really commonly quoted. Um, it's actually way overused. I kind of dislike that phrase. Uh, there's a couple reasons. It's a platitude, but also like it doesn't really tell you anything until you start kind of diving in, you start pulling it apart. Life uh, or worship is a lifestyle. What does that mean? And that's where I'm going to start with this, okay? I think the onus of that phrase, the, the initial part that that phrase is trying to get to you is that worship is not musical. At least uh, not necessarily. Maybe you already know this. Maybe, maybe you've never even thought about this. In fact, up to this point, my whole intro, I've just talked about music that whole time, right? And I think a lot of what we're going to talk about over the next two weeks will be about music in the church, because that's kind of, it's a, it's a foundational thing for worship for us as modern Christians. But worship in and of itself is not innately musical. Um, I've read a great book. It's called How to Worship a King. It's about worship. It's by a guy named Zach Neese down in Texas. He says this about music. As one of the only art forms given to humanity that engages the trinity of our created beings, the body, the soul, and the spirit. Music's a wonderful tool for worship. But that's all it is. Music is a tool. Again, I want to go back to the basics of what worship is. I want us as a church to understand what it means to worship. I want, to, want us to understand what it means to worship God. I want us to understand what it means to worship not God, because I think that's also possible. So begin now. When I say worship... You say, not music. Worship. Not worship. Not well done. Okay, take that with you. Remember that. We're going to break down some of our preconceived notions about Bethel music or elevation worship. We're going to um, just stop thinking about like a liturgy or a church service. We're going to start from the very beginning because that's a really good place to start. 
So when we think of worship, we think of like giving praise, right? We think of being reverent. Um, the definition of worship in the English language is actually an expression or reverence or adoration for a deity. And I think we all kind of know that definition, right? Like worshiping God is like, well, yeah, it's like when I worship God, right? But it's kind of hard to even define the word sometimes without using the word. And so I want to start with some of the biblical context of what worship is. And there's an issue here. Worship's not explicitly defined in the Bible at no point is it said, this is what worship is. So to start with, I want to go to some of the Greek and Hebrew words that we translate into the English word worship and kind of see where some of those come from. Um, all of these words are translated into things like worship or praise or serve or bow before, things that we might call synonyms, but they're also translated as the direct word worship. So, okay, we're going to start in the Old Testament. I'm going to zoom through these. There's a bunch of them. I don't want this to turn into a lecture, but we'll start with the Hebrew, the Old Testament. First of all, there's shakah. Shakah means uh, to bow down before. This is used in Genesis when, when uh, Abraham, or sorry, Isaac and Abraham are going to the mount for Isaac to be sacrificed. It's directly translated into the English word worship. Halal is one you guys might be familiar with. It means to make a show of or be boastful. There's even like a connotation of being a fool. Um, this word's used a few times. Uh, for instance, in 1 Samuel, it's used when David says the Lord is worthy of praise. Praise is that word halal. It's also used in 1 Samuel when David's in the court of King Achish, and King Achish wants to kill him, and David feigns madness in order to keep himself from being killed. That feigning of madness, that's halal. Kind of a weird dichotomy of translations. Um, halal is used in Alleluia. Alleluia means to praise God. Halal, praise, Yah is God. Uh, halal is also used in Tehillah, which means to sing a halal. Yada means to hold out the hand, to revere, to worship with extended hands. It's used in 2 Samuel. It's translated praise. Tauda means something very similar. It's used in the Psalms. There's a ton of these. Uh, Barak means to bless or kneel. Zamar means to touch the strings or parts of a musical instrument or to make music, to celebrate in song. We know a little bit about that one already, I think, right? And one more, okay? Uh, Sagad. Sagad's an interesting one. Um, this is used only four times. It's used in Isaiah, and it's used specifically to talk about somebody worshiping a graven image or an idol, not the one true God. Put a pin in that word sagad. We're going to come back to it. Um, okay, keep going. Diving in the New Testament, this is the Greek. There's three that are translated as worship sometimes. Um, again, they also have, have some other translations. First is proskuneo. Proskuneo means to kiss the hand in token of reverence or to fall upon the knees, to kneel or prostrate in homage. It's used when the wise men are going uh, to see Jesus to worship him. Proskuneo. Sebomai, it's used 10 times. It means to revere or adore. Latreuo is used 22 times. It means to serve for hire. Um, this one is actually a really cool word. It comes from the word latris. And that word actually is a noun that means uh, a servant or a hired worker, a slave even. Um, I'm pretty sure you could write a whole sermon on just one word that means slave and its subsidiary word means worship. There's a whole bunch there. <clears throat> We're not going to do that right now. Latreu is also the word that is used in uh, my kind of main passage for today. So open your Bibles. We're going to go to uh, Romans 12.1. If you need a Bible, there's some in the chairs around you, or you can just read it up on the screens with me. <clears throat> so Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, this is your spiritual worship. That word worship is the trewo. 
This is a section that's quoted often in the conversation of just what worship is. It's one that I've come back to a lot of times. And um, this is the Apostle Paul writing to the Romans. And what he's saying is this. Instead of the sacrifices that were made to God in the Old Testament, sacrifices to him of dying animals that were to either atone for sin or to praise him, he's asking you to give your living to him. A living sacrifice. He's asking them to live in a sacrificial way, giving every part of their lives to God. That's kind of a cool picture of what worship is. It, you start to see now, okay, here's some biblical context. This breaks away from our ideas of music, our ideas of, of church even. This, the word worship encompasses many different actions. And if you need uh, more support for this idea, I want to talk about the context of worship outside the Bible as well. This is the English context. What does the word worship mean to us as a culture? And a quick side note about this, before I dive into it, biblical scholars are always quick to dive into Greek and Hebrew to get to the, the, the context from a Bible, which they absolutely should do. This is an important thing to do. We can't just blindly follow a translation and do whatever it says. We have to understand what it's really trying to say. However, if we believe that the Bible is, like Hebrews says, living and active, able to divide soul and spirit, able to discern thoughts and intentions of the heart, and if I believe that the Holy Spirit's working inside of me, then I have to believe that English is also an applicable way to learn about God, because my Bible's in English. What is language, after all, but a means to an end? The end is understanding and communication. English is the way that I've learned everything I know about God. And even if I go back to the Greek or Hebrew eventually, I've started with those English words. It's important to realize that our common tongue words that we use every day, like worship, they have um, applicable meaning to us here and now. We have to understand what that word means to us in our culture, and then we take the biblical context, we put those two together, and then we have a full, complete understanding of what worship is to us when we say it, when that word comes out of our, our mouths. Does that make sense? So um, there's also one additional thing that I just want to bring along with this. Um, I'm gonna walk us down a little train of logic here. Uh, so each of us, as Christians, we have our own relationship with God, right? Um, each relationship you might even say is unique. It's its, it's its own. You might even be able to say that because of the things that we've interacted with God through our entire lives, that's created this unique relationship, we might have a, an understanding about God that the person sitting next to you right now doesn't have. They might just be younger than you. They haven't lived as much life. Either way, you have a unique relationship with God. Uh, another way to say it is this. Each of us kind of has an understanding of who God is by the, the, the relationship that we have. That's a single facet of a many-faceted God. The person sitting next to you kind of understands a second facet. And here's what I'm getting at. Even among modern-day languages, there's words that don't translate into each other. It's almost like each of these languages that's been created by God individually has its own idea of who God is. The word for worship in Spanish, I didn't look this up, might not have all the same connotation that the word has in English. I think this is a really cool idea. It's like each language can describe God in its own way. It has its own understanding of who God is. Uh, maybe you've heard this story before. It's the story of three blind men who are describing an elephant. They're all blind. One grabs the elephant's trunk and says, oh, an elephant is lithe and thin like a snake. And the second blind man says, well, no, he's not. And he touches his, it's the elephant's side and says, it's, it's smooth like a wall. And the third one grabs an elephant's leg and says, no, it's round like a tree. 
Like all of the blind men have an idea of who God is. None of them have the full picture. And for a God that's so incredibly, you know, for lack of a better term, big, we don't have a full picture. We can't understand a full picture of who God is. So, okay, all to say this. God's created all these languages individually. I think they have their own idea of who God is built into their vernacular. And the really cool thing in Revelation, when all tribes come together to worship him, we each get to worship him with a different understanding of who God is on the tips of our tongues, which is really cool. But okay, this is why I think it's okay for us, back to worship, that was a tangent, back to worship. This is why I think it's okay for us to take the English word worship and use it as a basis for theology for us because it's the word that we use. It's the word that we've been given to describe God, to describe what we're doing for God. So we have to understand what it means as well. Some of you might disagree with that train of logic. That's fine. I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at jeff at rendicator.org. That's a classic joke around here, guys. We use it all the time. <laughs> no, but seriously, I'd love to hear from you. Send me an email. It's tj at rendicator.org. I'd love to talk to you about this stuff. So, okay, to worship. Let's understand what worship means to us in English. Okay, worship can be broken down actually into two words. A lot of you might have heard this before. There's worth and there's ship. The word worth and the suffix ship. Worthship was probably how it was originally said. That devolved into the word worship we know today. Worth is pretty easy for us to define. You know what I mean when I say your value, it has worth to me. It holds weight. Or, sorry, did I say your value? Your opinion. Your opinion has worth to me. It holds weight. It has value. Your opinion does. That's kind of what worth means. Ship is a little more difficult to define. It denotes a condition. That's what the suffix does. So like a friendship is between two people that are friends. They have the condition of being friends. So worship is when you give value to something. You denote that something has value to something. Anything that has value to you is something that you worship by etymological definition. And my next logical question was, well, then what is value? Like, how do I show that something has worth? We kind of have uh, an answer for this too, right? Money. We know that we give money for something for something that has equal value to us, right? That's, that's the easy one, money is. Uh, you guys know the adage, time is money, right? So we're going to go to time. Anything that you give time to, an activity, that's an activity that you value. It has worth to you. There's, a, there's kind of a whole bunch of these. Um, yeah, we even use terms like it's worth my time or energy or, or, or attention to do this thing, right? All of those are what you might call resources that we give up for something that we value. In fact, I would say we worship anything that we sacrifice any of those resources for. Resources like effort, time, money, focus, energy, and by giving our resource, we're proving something's value, we're giving it worth, and we're worshiping it. Guys, we all do that. Like, we all have time that we give up for things. Um, first of all, you're all worshipers. I know a lot of people who say, I don't sing, I don't pray very much, like, I'm not a worshiper. That's just not true. By definition, you're a worshiper. In fact, I would take it a step further. You're all worship leaders to the people around you in your lives. You do my job for me. That's awesome. Thank you. I appreciate that. Okay, but there's one more reality we have to understand here. If we worship anything that we sacrifice these resources to, 
I'm gonna take us back to that Hebrew, that word sagad I said to put a pin in. We talked about it before. Uh, it's the Hebrew word that's translated worship in a lot of English translations, but means to fall down before an idol or a graven image explicitly. That's the only time it's used. I wanna make this point with that. Our word for worship does not, is not innately towards God. What we know as worship does not have to be godly. It can be, but it isn't always. And if you hadn't realized, that's a pretty big issue for us as Christians. I'm telling you that you can and do worship things other than God. If we go back to that definition, the English definition of worship, I just mentioned it in passing. It's the, the expression of praise or adoration to a deity. You can add this to it. Anything that you worship is a God by that definition. Do you see what I'm getting at? I'm saying all of us worship many gods. Some of you might be a little offended right now. That's okay. I get that. Um, I'm basically accusing, accusing us all of being polytheistic, so that makes some sense. But to be honest, I doubt I have to even prove this to you. I don't think I need to prove to you that we've taken God out of the focus of our culture. We've replaced him with self and money and fame. There's a million sermons out there you can find that'll tell you the same thing. These things are gods in our lives, proven by our worship of them. And here's the big issue. This is where I'm, where I'm headed. Exodus 23, commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Okay? This is a, this is a um, verse that I often misunderstood as a kid. Uh, I always thought, okay, God, you're number one in my life. And number two is video games. Let's go. And number three is food. Here we go. Like, and I, I recognize, like, okay, I've got these other things, but God's number one, and that's fine. Let's take a look at that word before. Okay, this is what's called a polysemous word. Uh, that is a term I learned entirely for this sermon. I didn't know it before this. Say it with me, polysemous. That's right, it's a fun word to say. That word means that a polysemous word is a word that has two closely related meanings. So before is a polysemous word. It has multiple related meanings. You might say, you know, first place in a race comes before second place. But another way to say it is, you guys, all right now, you are sitting before me. You're sitting in my presence. Back to, back to the first commandment. You shall have no, no other gods before me. What about, you shall have no other gods in my presence. You shall have no other gods at all. There are no other gods in your life. David Platt is a pastor. Uh, he says this about commandment number one. <clears throat> you shall give your heart completely over to God, not to your spouse, not to your children, not to your job, not to money or pleasure or fame. Nothing in this world holds in your heart the supreme position other than God, according to this command. This is the commandment that drives us. Think about it. Sin flows from disobedience to this command. Guys, here it is. This is the essence of sin. It's the, it's the root of evil. And I'm telling you, you and I, we do it all the time. But uh, TJ, uh, I have to sleep tonight. I have to go to bed. I, I'm going to go get lunch after this. I, I'm, I need food, right? How do I live my life without spending money or time on different things? If I'm proving those things as gods, I really don't want to, but how do I even avoid that? 
And this is where the rubber starts to kind of meet the road for us. Um, this is where I think the question, what is worship, kind of stops being that valuable to us. We need to understand what is godly worship because they're not always the same thing. So this is, this is where I'm going to head with this. Ready? I'm going to put it this way. Everything in your life, everything that you spend money on, do things for, anything like that, whatever your motivation is behind that, that action, that matters. Motivation matters. Perspective matters. Our reasons for sacrificing resources to obtain things matter. Okay? I'm going to use an analogy just to, just to help with this. And uh, I've been working out lately. It's been kind of a big deal. So all my, all my analogies are going to be about the gym. Jeff says prove it. <clears throat> but all my analogies are going to be about the gym. All right? Uh, you're going to have to deal with that. I'm sorry. <clears throat> but, okay. Um, imagine this. Imagine you are an alien. You're from Mars. You're a Martian. You know nothing about humans. You have 24 hours to go to Earth and find out as much about humans as you can. So you, you fly your ship over to Earth. You find one subject, and you decide, I'm going to follow him all day long. Okay? I'm going to see what he does. So your subject wakes up in the morning, bright and early, and heads to the gym. You're going, what? He gave up sleep. He's going to give up energy. It's leg day. He's doing squats. Are you kidding me? Nobody wants to do lunges. Come on. And then later on in the day, he goes on with his, with his time. He goes to work. He eats lunch. And by 1 o'clock, dude, he's exhausted. He can't even walk up a flight of stairs. It was the first leg day he'd done in six months. <laughs> it's never a good day when that happens. Let me tell you what. So you, as an alien, you've had 24 hours. You've observed him. You go, okay. He got up in the morning. He sacrificed time and energy. He went and worked out. And he was sore in the afternoon. So humans work out to be sore that's really dumb. What, what, what are humans doing? No, but of course, if you as an alien were to spend three months observing this subject and you saw a disciplined person go back to the gym again and again and again, you'd realize, oh, this guy's given himself to something beyond soreness, beyond this afternoon. He's given himself to a healthy lifestyle, to improving his health. And after three months, you can tell the difference in what he's been doing, right? Similarly, back to worship. Motivation matters in worship. It's beyond the immediate uh, ramifications, the immediate gratification that you can get. I think in everything, and I mean everything, God is literally asking us, why are you doing what you're doing? Is it for me or is it for you? I take this literally across the board. We're going to jump back. Romans 12.1, once again. I appeal to you, brothers, uh, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice that is holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. I want to make sure that we note something. You're called to be a living sacrifice. This means that we have to live, we have to eat food, we have to sleep, we have to do things, we have to spend money, we have to take care of our bodies. But if we are living for Christ, every time we close our eyes for bed, we have an opportunity to show him an act of worship. Lord, I'm going to bed early so that tomorrow I can wake up ready to do the work you've put before me. Every time we spend some time resting instead of doing that next moment of work that we know just has to get done, we can say, Lord, I'm choosing to give my brain a break so that later on I can minister to your people better. Every time we spend money on tacos, even. Yeah, tacos can be an act of worship. Jeff, say amen. <laughs> You can say, Lord, I'm eating this right now so that my body can have the energy it needs to do the work that you've put before me. 
I mean, come on. First Corinthians says, whatever you eat, whatever you drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Matthew 22 says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Everything you do, all your heart, soul, and mind, bring your whole body as a living sacrifice. I don't know about you, but everything in my life is made up of those things. These are directives from God telling us everything we do has to be directed at him. And there it is. That's what godly worship is. It takes every moment of your life being focused towards him. I have a question for you. Do you go to church because you think it's going to save you? Or do you go to church because you want to build a godly community that can help you pursue God? You want to learn more about him so that you can worship him better. This is a great dichotomy between the religious kind of quote-unquote worship that the church can devolve into. It follows a specific rule book purely for the sake of, of following the rules. And this stands in opposition to what a real worshiper of God is. Back to Zach Neese and how to worship a king. A religious person's like a slave. He serves God out of compulsion or fear or a sense of duty. He's not truly free, for he feels constrained to obey God, but his heart longs to be its own master. But a worshiper is a person who has complete freedom to choose, but loved God so much that he chose to serve and obey him because there's nothing he'd rather do. Motivation matters. And this is hard. I hope this is convicting so far. Some of you might still be offended. <laughs> I really believe that in everything that we do, we can choose. We either worship God or we worship not God. And that not God, I don't know how else to define that, but me. Anything that is not of God, it's what I want, right? And I know all of us have like these sin issues in our lives, right? I'm pretty black and white with this though. If you choose that thing, if you choose to do that thing, you are choosing worship of yourself. It goes beyond the action, like being a sin. You're replacing God in your life with your own worship. This is convicting to me because I, I do this all the time. But it's not condemning. This isn't the end of the story for us because one thing, there is grace for us. This is grace that saves. This is grace that comes from God, that is God giving of himself to us. There is no condemnation in Christ. Through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, there is no condemnation in Christ. The way I think about grace, by the way, is, is like this. It's like God saying, hey, I see that you failed, that you, that you fell. That's okay. Get up and never do it again. And the great part is the next time that you fail, because we will, that message is the same. It's okay. Get up. Now don't do it again. That message is the same again and again, because there is grace without end, an overflowing well of grace. And look, this isn't permission to sin, but it is the power to overcome sin. And this leads me to kind of my last point. And also, I hope the light at the end of the tunnel here, um, because I know like everything I just said was like, hey, you're a sinner. You suck. We all are the worst. All we do is sin, God, uh, you know, sin and worship ourselves. That is, that is not the message to walk away with here because of this, okay? If you're saved, you have the Holy Spirit in you. Not only is there grace for you, but through grace, God is forgiving you. You have forgiveness in that. And then beyond that, the next step, God is also sanctifying you. 
Sanctification, this is just a religious term. It means set apart for. Um, Joe Oval, our very own Joe, helped me see it this way. Sanctification, okay. Um, if you have a spoon, it's a, it's a dinner spoon, and only you use that spoon. Nobody else can touch it, use it for dinner every night. That spoon is sanctified for you. It's been set apart for you, for your purpose and your use. And similarly, after you're done using it, that spoon goes in the wash. It gets washed, it gets cleaned, it gets purified, it gets prepared. That is a process of sanctification for that spoon so that it can be ready for the purpose set before it. In the same way, God has a purpose for us. He's set us apart as Christians to be different, to be used by him. And that process of being sanctified, like in the washing machine, that's a process that the Holy Spirit takes us through. He leads us in that. We're to be sanctified by him. We're to be grown. We're to be developed. We're to become closer and closer with God, closer and closer to the holy person that God would call us to be as well. The more that we cast off the chains of sin and leave behind bad life habits and grow spiritually and draw closer to God, the more he forms us in the person that he wants to, us to be so that he can use us for his great purpose. God, following the Holy Spirit down this pathway of sanctification, that's a choice of worship. That's worshiping him. That's awesome. You growing, that's worship. And that's, that's awesome, but this isn't easy. Um, Jenny Allen is the author of a book called Get Out of Your Head. She says, she says this about being sanctified. People do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, that's grace, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, or delight in the Lord. This just doesn't happen, and it can't happen without the Holy Spirit in us. We're gonna go back to Romans 12 one more time. This time we're adding verse two. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. This is your spiritual worship. You should have all be familiar with that part. Now on to verse two. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. The world will lead us to do everything that we want. God is calling us away from that into worship of him in all things. And here's the encouragement. He's not asking you to do it alone. Through the work of the Holy Spirit inside you, he's sanctifying you. He's setting you apart from the world, showing you places in your life to work. And as those things are hard and they're difficult and they will be, Jesus says, I will walk beside you in them. He says, cast all your cares upon me. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He's walking with us. For me right now, this looks like um, me working on my disciplines. Um, I'll be honest, this has been a long, long, hard process for me. Discipline's been like a theme word for me. I've just got issues, and I know I've got to be disciplined <laughs> in fixing them. We've all got issues, but don't you know I've got issues too? <clears throat> so discipline, it's been, this, it's been this theme for me. It's been long. It's been like seven or eight years, but I've seen God do really amazing things through it. I'm just going to keep bringing this up because I'm, I'm proud of it, but I lift. <laughs> I've been working out in the mornings. Um, and I've been like losing a couple pounds. It's been great for my mental health. And guys, that stuff's great. But the fact is there's a deeper purpose. There's a deeper motivation to me going to the gym. Every morning when my alarm goes off and I know I have to get up, I've got to go to the gym. I don't want to. I don't want to do that. But through this flexing of discipline, 
the Holy Spirit is working through me. He's, he's drawing me into this, and I'm becoming more and more disciplined. And all of a sudden, man, there's, there's these things in my life, and every day I'm faced with temptation, right? But as the Holy Spirit comes alongside me and says, hey, no, this is the right way to go. No, this is, this is the, the right thing to choose. I'm more and more able to make those right choices, make those right decisions. God is sanctifying me. He's growing me. I'm talking from the middle of this. I'm not through this at all. I'm not at all. Hmm. He's changed my life. He really has. And praise God for that. I want to make sure I make just two distinctions really quickly, and then I'm, I promise I'll get off the stage. <clears throat> One, I'm not saying everybody should get up and go to the gym tomorrow. That is not what I'm saying, okay? That is not the... the the message to walk away with here either. What I am saying is pursue the things God's put before you. Say yes to them. I, I know each of us has got that thing. I don't have to know what it is. I know the Holy Spirit's poking at you right now. Here's this thing. Say yes. And the second thing is this. I'm also not making a case for a works-based faith, uh, a salvation that you can achieve by being disciplined and through good works. That is not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about anything that's salvific, that saves you. That's a mindset that Jesus died to abolish, to get rid of. Only through the work of Jesus are we saved. I am speaking of grace-driven, Holy Spirit-inspired sanctification. And while we don't have really anything to do with salvation other than to just say yes, sanctification we have to show up for. We've got to let God lead us through things. You know, to be honest, the Bible would tell us that uh, it'll happen either way. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. But the better way is to go willingly. Let's do this now. God, I fall in line with you. Yes. I think it's pretty great that we get to start all these spiritual practices with worship, all these mini-series that we're going to do. We'll come back to them maybe in a couple months and we'll do one more. And then we'll spend a couple months and we'll do one more. We name these spiritual practices, but the other word for that would be spiritual disciplines. I kind of said that earlier. Prayer and fasting and Sabbath and solitude, meditating on the word and and worship, all these are disciplines. And by the definition of discipline that I tried to convince you of earlier, all those things are also worship. This is what I think God's saying to us. Dive into me. Come meditate on my word. Come to me in prayer and fasting. Come and worship me. I want to help you. I'm not asking you guys to do more things. What I am asking of you is change your mindset of what you're already doing. Change the motivation behind your actions. In doing so, many of your actions will probably change, but many will just become Christ-centered. And the Holy Spirit will come alongside you pointing out one thing at a time in your life that needs to change in an act of worship, you can submit. You can say, yes, Lord. And boom, you're off. You started down that path of sanctification, a path that'll lead you to a life that is full of God-centered worship. So what is worship? Your life is worship. And everything you do, whether you want it to be or not, your life is worship. So worship God. Come and live a God-centered life. It really is up to you who you choose to worship.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, this is a tough word, God. I'm, I'm convicted myself, Lord. And I don't think I can, I don't think I can pray this uh, for you specifically. So if you want this, you can pray it over yourself. But Lord, I ask, Holy Spirit, come into my life. Work in me, Father. Sanctify me. Find areas in my life that need to change, that need to be directed towards you and towards you alone. And then God, give me the conviction, give me the energy, give me the, the power to, to address those things and work through them, God, so that I can be closer to you, more and more holy like you, so that I can worship you in everything that I do. Heavenly Father, I love you. I bless you. I praise you. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Thanks for joining with us today. We would love to pray for you and make a connection with you. So please check out the Church at Home page at rendicator.org. Here you can ask questions, request prayer, find past messages and podcasts, or support Renaissance through online giving. We can't wait to hear from you. 